Welcome. It's great to be with you tonight as we look forward to being able to talk together about some of the things that are so critical to, to our planning for not only our present but for our future, for our loved ones, and most of all in our relationship to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a bit of an overview of what tonight is going to look like, and then after I've given the overview, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll launch into our Christian perspective. What we want to understand from the very onset tonight is that what we're going to be doing is we're talking about the whole issue of life and death. This is the actually the 16th Christian Perspective series that we've done. We've covered things such as the history of America from a Christian worldview, Islam, Middle East, origins, so the sanctity of human life, capital punishment, same-sex marriage, divorce, remarriage, and uh, things of this nature. And what we're trying to do is to be able to relate biblical truth to the very complex times in which we live in. And so what seems to be the burning issue of the hour is the whole matter of health care today. As we have seen the expansion of government and now the involvement in it in our health care matters, we see the expansion of government, the growth of technology, and the growth of secularism converging to such a degree that it's making it increasingly difficult to make quality decisions if you and I don't have the framework of a Christian worldview. And so what we want to do is to, over the course of these four nights, to work together to develop our Christian worldview in the matters of life and death. And so what we're going to have in the coming moments is about a, a five to ten minute perspective from Scripture, and then we're going to be asking our panelists to come and join me up front, Dr. Wurzel, Dr. Lines, and Dr. Tuttle, and Dean Becker is going to be the lead in terms of the discussion tonight, all of whom attend our church, involved in our, in our ministries in various ways, shapes, or forms, and all of whom are involved in medical health care matters. We're going to have a roundtable discussion. They're going to have a case study they'll be discussing. Some PowerPoint will be appearing on the screen. And then at a certain point, we're going to shift and have a time where there can be congregational uh, participatory involvement. And uh, Pastors McDonald and Gilliland are going to have mics in their hands, kind of roaming the audience and taking your questions. And as you do so, what I'd like you to do is to build off of the general presentation tonight to start with and uh, then, of course, broaden your, your thinking in terms of how your question relates to the whole, rather than try to utilize your own personal case study to get a particular medical question answered. There's certainly enough medical personnel that could be talking more about those things, I suppose, after our gathering tonight and the subsequent nights. So that's a bit of what tonight will be all about, and then after that time of audience Q&A, I'll try to provide a one- to two-minute summary, and we'll wrap up tonight. We have... Uh, a table off to the side with advanced directives, and you're going to want to be able to walk around, take a look at them. We have a video presentation that's taking place as well that will give you added insight regarding these advanced directives. And hopefully what we will find through the course of these four nights together is that once again we've been able to develop and shape a Christian worldview regarding critical issues of the hour. So with that in mind, we're going to kick it off by looking to our Lord in prayer. And so, our Father, we thank you now tonight that you, the God of life, brought Jesus Christ into this world, who addressed the whole issue of death by going to that cross to die for our sins, 
and then conquered the issue of death through the resurrection from the grave. But we would need, Father, to be able to have a biblical perspective on how to apply these to our own lives, in our own relationships, and to share these thoughts with our co-workers, our colleagues, our neighbors, and extended family members. Help us to develop a Christian perspective. We want, first and foremost, to honor you and what we do tonight. And so we thank you, Father, for guiding and directing. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two, what I will call, pivotal elements that are going to be attached to tonight's framing of this discussion on the whole matter of biblical perspectives on death. And the first is what I'll call simply the whole issue of the separation that takes place at the time of death, in death. Because death involves separation. In Genesis chapter 2, and in verse 17, God said to Adam, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Which is interesting, because later the evil one would counter that by stating, You will not surely die. Utilizing the same phrasing, the surely and the die, but putting a negative in front of it. And so what we have, even at the onset then, is a crisis in the whole issue of how to understand this matter of life and how to understand this matter of death. Adam had not had an experience with this whole matter of death and separation at this point, so he could not frame his thinking as God spoke to him experientially So what we find then is that the evil one will tempt him to be able to understand this experientially by negating what God had said to Adam. Now, what Paul would tell you and to tell me in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, that just, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So death is the penalty for original sin. In the Bible, what we find is that there are three types of death that are described. There is what is known as spiritual death. I sometimes allude to this in our expositions on Sunday mornings. Spiritual death is what I entered the world with. Gary Highlander came into this world physically alive, spiritually dead. Spiritual death is simply the separation of the soul from God. I came into this world inheriting separation, separation of my soul from God. Though physically alive, I was separated spiritually from the life giver himself, God. Second of all, there is physical death. When God told Adam that in the day in which you eat of this, you will surely die, Adam eventually walked out of that garden. So you say, is that a a conflict then, right there in the Bible, in the opening verses? Well, what you and I have to understand is that there are various types of death. Adam died spiritually and internally. 
And typically, what you and I have to understand is that the principles of life and death work from the inside out. One dies spiritually, and then it works itself out until one has died physically. Just like when one is born again, life begins internally, and then ultimately our bodies someday will be glorified physically. In both cases, what we find here is that there is this internal moving towards the external in the principles of death as well as life. Spiritual death, separation then of the soul from God. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Having done many funerals over the course of 30-some years, the most painful issue is simply the issue of separation. Loved ones standing at a casket. Loved ones mourning over the fact that they couldn't find a way to have their final say of, I forgive you or I love you, because now they feel permanently separated. Death separates. Spiritual death separates soul from God. Physical death separates soul from body. Eternal death is the separation of the soul and the body from God forever. It's simply spiritual death made permanent. But as Dr. Tuttle pointed out this morning in our interviews, is that Jesus Christ conquered death. He had victory over death, which means then, very simply, He is victorious over separation. People feel estranged and separated and alienated in this world from God, self, body, society. And Jesus Christ conquered separation on that third day by being raised from the dead. So tonight we're dealing with separation that's involved in death. But the other pivotal point tonight is the preparation that is needed for death. You will hear us talking occasionally over the course of these four nights about advanced directives. What I want to be able to simply say in a nutshell is that Jesus Christ was given the first significant eternal advanced directive. When in eternity past, God the Father commissioned God the Son to go to the world to die for our sins. It was a directive given in advance. It was such a detailed advanced directive that you have generations of prophecies that continue to define what that, those final hours, in fact, were going to look like. Jesus himself, in the book of Mark, when he wanted to be able to draw his disciples' attention to the fact that that these things must occur, said in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. In other words, his advanced directive he spoke plainly about. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I guess Peter just didn't like advanced directives. But this advanced directive came from God the Father in relationship to God the Son, and we find the illumination of God the Holy Spirit at work within us. 
So now, Jesus Christ, with his advanced directive, prepared himself by going to die. That means, then, that you and I, modeling these biblical principles, need to be able to take now the passages of Scripture, and in light of this, tie together the separation involved in death with the preparation needed for death by saying, just as Christ took the eternal advanced directive, going to that cross, he must suffer, Likewise, now, I have to prepare. I have to prepare for death, physical death, but I also have to prepare for eternity so that I don't experience eternal death. I need to put my faith and trust in the one who accepted his advanced directive and died in my place so that I could have eternal life. In a nutshell, in five-plus minutes, Lord willing, I've given you a framework now for what we're talking about, this whole issue of the directive given in advance, the advanced directive. And so we're going to frame these thoughts, the separation involved in death and the preparation needed for death by asking now for our panel to come and join me up front as Dean Becker is going to be taking the lead and Dr. Verzo, Dr. Lyons, and Dr. Tuttle likewise. We're going to have a roundtable discussion and they're going to tackle a case study And then after a period of time, we're going to open up for questions, and I I pray that this is going to minister to your hearts. Why don't you join me up front, and we'll carry on. And let's give them a a warm welcome for thanking them for being part of this tonight. Thank you. Perhaps to get us started, even Dean, before you take the lead, if you could just go around and perhaps in a sentence or two and just tell everybody um, what your role is in the healthcare profession, starting with you, Paul. Well, I'm Paul Tuttle. Um, I work uh, at the Aurora Sheboygan Clinic. I'm a neurologist and uh, have been in Sheboygan now for almost 20 years. I've been practicing the specialty of neurology. Well, next year will be 30 years, so a while. Well, it makes six years look pretty short. Um, Dr. Versal, I work at the Sheboygan Clinic as well in family practice. I, too, am a family practitioner. I've been in Sheboygan 22 years with Aurora, and I have a master's in nutrition and have special interest in nutrition. Okay. And I am not with Aurora. <laughs> <laughs> Used to be. Used to be. Uh, 16 years with emergency medicine uh, with uh, Orange Cross Ambulance Service, and then about five years in long-term health care administration, uh, and most recently uh, clinic manager with Columbia St. Mary's, the Marshall Family Medical Group uh, here in town. So that kind of rounds out our panel. And as we, um, as we start this evening, I think it's important that we start with a, a few terms and um, I do have a PowerPoint here that we'll pull up the slides on. Um, and, and the terms are going to be related to the documents that are available over on the table that you either have already picked up or you can pick up afterwards. Um, and the documents that we're dealing with are called advanced directives. And an advanced directive really gives direction to the healthcare community when you're not able to speak for yourself. Um, whether it's a, a medical condition, an injury, whatever it might be, for some reason you are incapacitated, you're not able to speak, you're not able to give direction, 
And this document begins to provide that direction. That's what an advanced directive is. And there are um, a couple of examples that we have over there. The aqua colored one that's called Five Wishes is available over there. That particular document really um, is a great document if you'd like to sit down around the kitchen table, figure this out, fill it out, and you'd have it. It's a wonderful document for that. Uh, if you're interested in reviewing who your healthcare agent is, and in a minute I'll explain what a healthcare agent is, explaining um, or reviewing that, the document from Columbia St. Mary's is a wonderful document to figure out who should be your healthcare agent. It may not be your spouse. It may not be the one closest to you. And we'll get into that a little bit more this evening. And then uh, the final document we have over there is called the, the State Power of Attorney document. If you're more of a legalistic person and you just want to do what the state asks, that form is great for that. All of these are legal in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, so that gives us a little bit of a framework um, for um, our PowerPoint. Do we have PowerPoint slides? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. Um, the other thing I'd like to mention is that when you fill out this document, it will sit on the shelf until you need it, until two physicians agree that you're not able to make decisions. At that point, it becomes activated. And that's an important point to understand, is that if you fill it out this evening when you go home, it doesn't become active until it's uh, uh, activated by two physicians. So um, the other point I wanted to make was the healthcare agent. These documents use a healthcare agent to make decisions for you. And tonight's focus is really on who should be your agent. Uh, we'll have time for questions, and subsequent nights we'll focus on other areas of uh, these documents. So as we start thinking about uh, who should be your healthcare agent, there are kind of three scenarios that you need to think about. The first one is related to some sudden incident, some sudden illness, some sudden, sudden injury or accident occurs. You're unconscious, you're not able to speak for yourself. Who's going to speak for you in that situation? Uh, the second one is related to um, a chronic condition where you have some chronic illness that is going on for a period of time and during the course of your recovery you're needing a healthcare agent to speak for you because of the course of treatment that's going to be offered. And then the last one is you have some type of a terminal illness and decisions are needing to be made as your life draws to an end. So those are kind of the three scenarios where a healthcare agent is going to be pulled into, um, into action, so to speak. And it's really important to think about who that person should be. Um, so let's move on to the, to the next slide here. And what I'd like you to do this evening is I'm going to start laying out a scenario here. It really could be a scenario with any age. I'm going to use somebody who's 62 years of age. But it really could be anybody in this room who's... 18 years or older, because um, that's what we're talking about. And what decisions would you want made? What decisions would you make if you were in this situation? 
And what decisions would you want your healthcare agent to make if you were in this situation? So the gentleman who we're going to have this evening, his name is Mr. Smith, and the question really is what treatment options would you choose considering how dramatically his life has changed? And uh, so I'm going to lay this out here. He's a 62-year-old. He's extremely active, and uh, he loves to play golf. And uh, while he's out on the golf course, he has a sudden bout of abdominal pain that comes on, and he is taken to the emergency room, taken to the hospital, um, and things kind of progress in a negative state from there. Uh, At the hospital, he's found to have a large blood vessel that's ruptured, and it's caused extensive internal bleeding. Uh, Mr. Smith is then admitted to the uh, ICU, and over the next several days, he suffers significant complications due to the blood loss. Um, He has extremely low blood pressure. He has had some kidney damage that's occurred, and the circulation to his left leg has been compromised. So he's not doing very well. Um, He is unconscious, and he's on a breathing machine. So that's the scenario. His doctors have talked to his wife about uh, her husband's poor condition, and they're not sure about his full recovery. Uh, They feel that Mr. Smith could eventually breathe on his own, but because there was minimal blood flow um, to his brain during the emergency surgery, uh, he has continued to remain unresponsive. They're not sure how things are going to come to an end there. The doctors also inform Mrs. Smith, who is his wife of 37 years, uh, but they don't have any children. So uh, they don't have any children, and she's a wife of 37 years, that her husband would need to undergo um, an amputation of his left leg and that uh, he will need renal dialysis two to three times a week. So with that, we're going to turn to our medical experts for um, what's it going to look like for Mr. Smith over the next few days here. Well, Dean, thanks for giving us an easy case scenario. My pleasure. (laughs) I was going to say, the first thing I'd do would be to get a neurology consult. (laughs) I, you know, I just deal from here up. Um, Yeah, it's a, this is a sort of a classic scenario of someone that has really been in good health and then something catastrophic happens, a catastrophic illness, in this case probably a ruptured aneurysm of the abdominal aorta, which can certainly occur at age 62 or um, at any age from 40 up. So uh, Mrs. Smith is, is in a tough situation because now the doctors are turning to her and saying, your husband is very ill. We're having to support him with all this machinery here. We're not exactly sure what the outcome is going to be. There are some things that are looking good. We'll get him off the ventilator. It looks like he's going to need the kidney dialysis for a period of time. And they may say, we don't know if that's going to be weeks and he'll recover, but maybe it'll be permanent. Maybe his kidneys will not recover. Uh, And that leg, well, it's not looking good and that's going to have to come off. So she has some tough decisions to make. So as, as a primary care doc, uh, working with a family, I would want to know what his wishes are. So my first 
question would be, does he have any advanced planning? Does he have an advanced directive? And he, he does have an advanced directive, um, and he has named Mrs. Smith as the agent who will speak for him. My, my next comment would be, your advanced directive is not going to speak to whether your leg needs to be amputated, or maybe even necessarily whether you want to be on dialysis three times a week. Maybe it does. Maybe it's really detailed. Yeah, maybe it does. But, <laughs> but it, it, so, so one point is to make your advanced directive as detailed as you can, realizing you never can accommodate all the possibilities. So, so one of the things you're really pointing out is that you want somebody, the agent you want to pick is somebody who could make a tough decision like that and know how you would proceed to make that decision. Mm-hmm. You know, what would, what would you want? What would Mr. Smith want in this case? Would he choose to amputate the leg? Would he choose to go on dialysis based upon his values? And, and we would coach Mrs. Smith that we are expecting to, for her to decide how he would want, not how she would want which is an important distinction. Mm-hmm. Now, if let, let, let's change the scenario here a little bit, and let's, let's add something. Let's say that Mrs. Smith suffers from depression. Okay? And what I want you to think about is maybe you have a health care agent. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you're in your mid-20s or 30s, recently married. Probably a good choice. Maybe you're middle-aged, or maybe you're elderly. Who you pick may change as time goes by. You can always update your power of attorney for health care. But as things change in your life, you need to reconsider. You need to, as there's going to be a separation that occurs, you need to prepare and to think about who is going to be that best choice. And the decision you make today may not be the same in 20 years. And so in this case, Mr. Smith knew that his wife suffered from depression. So how does this scenario change now if if they don't have any children and she's not able to really participate in the decision-making process? What happens? Right, so now Mrs. Smith may say something like, well, doctor, I, I can't decide. I, I, I'm just not emotionally capable of coming to some kind of decision. My husband maybe said some things about how he didn't want to be you know, dependent on uh, life support machines for the rest of his life, but you're telling me that, that maybe there is some hope here but I, I just don't know what to do. And then she's putting the ball back in the court of the doctor. Let's say she does that. Then we're back to the scenario of how things were before the 1960s. Because before the 1960s, we had something called paternal law. That's where most people in society, and at least in, in our country, basically defer to the doctor to make those difficult choices for him or her. And, and partly that was because we felt that, that we as a society had some shared values, uh, that we did place a very high emphasis on the sanctity of human life. 
And so we, we basically trusted the doctor that he would make decisions that were benevolent, that he wouldn't make decisions that were contrary to our good. Um, but in the 1960s, things cha- changed. We started getting into the whole thing about individual rights, uh, this whole issue of informed consent. And if any of you have had any kind of surgery, you, you remember the paperwork you have to go through and sign off and, and hear about all the different complications that you don't really want to hear about. You just want to know that you're going to be better when the doctor is done. But the doctor has this thing on his back called informed consent, so he has to tell you about all the bad things that could happen. So informed consent came along in the 1960s also. So things have changed from the, the paternalistic approach where the doctor had the responsibility to make these calls to this whole concept of autonomy, which puts the, the ball in the court of the patient. And we then defer to the patient and say, what do you want? And what? that has a complication in particular because, you know, we have a fair amount of medical knowledge represented at this table, but I can talk to my sister who, she's got a lot of, uh, she has a PhD, she's got a lot of education, but she doesn't, she doesn't know anything about any of this stuff. And so there is a certain amount of medical knowledge and medical speak that really goes over our heads uh, as uh, lay people in understanding these kind of things. In the terms of, we hear the words, um, code and no code. You hear the words advanced directive and even that, I mean, that's a legal term. And, and you hear you know, terms like uh, dialysis. What is dialysis? What is a vent machine? What is a defibrillator? What, uh-huh. Will they ever wake up from this? And I think one of the scenarios, one of the things inside of the scenario is that, number one, on Mrs. Smith's mind can, and adding to her stress is is he going to, I just want my husband back. I just want my husband to wake up and tell me what to do and to comfort me. And, and if she's in a place where she can't get taken back and make these decisions, but not only that, is that that's what's in our, all of our hearts, right? We're thinking, well, you know, you can live without, you know, the, the decisions of, well, you know, maybe he wouldn't choose to live without his leg. Maybe that's a big deal breaker. Dialysis could be a short-term thing or it could be a long-term thing. It can be painful. It can be time-consuming. It can wear you out like chemo. And um, uh, and never mind how much oxygen deprivation did he have to his brain. Is he ever going to walk again? Is he going to be able to speak or feed himself? And these questions. And as a lay community, uh, how, uh, working with doctors trying to communicate that, and the other line is that just demystifying this, we don't know. And you don't know till somebody wakes up because as many times as somebody has said, we go, there's no chance. There's cases where we're like, I was blown away. I never saw that thing coming. It's like predicting when somebody's going, going into labor. Like, sure, I'll put my, I don't know, <laughs> right? Only, you know, only God knows these things. And in this perspective, um, dovetailing off of what Paul was getting into regarding, there was a time where our, I guess our culture was really homogenous. It was very... Um, uh, very same from person to person, and there was such a strong set of shared, shared values. We use the term pluralism, but what that means is that your next door neighbor would make entirely different decisions for their life than you would. Your wife would, and your children would make entirely different decisions than necessarily you would. You may make different decisions today than you did yesterday, and um, and then 
when we defer to physicians, we come with an assumption that, oh, well, that, that physician, that person comes from the same place and would make those decisions or has such and such best interest in mind and these things. And it's not necessarily the case. You know, we are under the Hippocratic Oath, um, but that's a very vague uh, oath, and that's changing. Well, we take this oath when we graduate from med school, whether or not, yeah. Okay, so, um, but the interpretation of that has changed over time. And a um, physician or nurse that you may be working with in the hospital to try to understand these things may not necessarily think of your husband's life in the same and value of your spouse's life in the same context and understanding that, that um, uh, you would yourself. And, well, and I think that, that moves towards a very important point that in this case, Mrs. Smith is going to be visiting with and talking with the doctors at the hospital. And I think most of us in our mind think, oh, yes, I'll, I'll be sitting there, and if, if Dr. Lyons is my doctor, I'll be sitting there talking with him in the room. And, and medicine has really moved towards using what's called a hospitalist. And a hospitalist is someone who just sees patients who are in the hospital. And so you may be sitting in the room talking about your husband or your wife's situation with someone who comes from another country because they're the hospitalist on duty that day. They could be Muslim. They could be Hindu. They could be many different things. But they're the hospitalist. And so they're the one in charge of the person's care on that particular day. And so if we can move on to the next slide here, um, and you can just put up all the points. As you think about your health care agent, as you think about the person who's going to speak for you, these are some of the questions you want to ask yourself. They're not the questions that this form is going to ask you. The form is going to say you need to have somebody who's over 18 years of age. It'll give you the legal things that you need to have in place. But the questions you really need to be asking is, does this person understand my values? Do I understand my values? Okay. What would I decide to do? What would my wife decide to do? Or my son, my brother, whoever it is. Are they willing to take on that responsibility to make these decisions? If you're in a scenario where it's a very emotional thing, somebody who's a step away from the emotion might be able to make a better decision. Um, we also want to have, pick somebody who will respect and follow your wishes. Um, one of the most pro profound uh, discussions I had with a family in long-term care um, was related to the person came in or the family came in, and their only question was, how much is this going to cost us because it's part of my inheritance? It's common. Yeah, it, it is very common for those type of things. And so will that person in that situation, would they follow the wishes of that person? Or are they going to slant towards decisions that affect their inheritance? Uh, the other one is, are they able to make difficult decisions? Okay. Can they make a difficult decision? And can they make it without, you know, can I make a decision without Amy? Can Amy make a decision without me, for example? Okay. In this case, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith. We can go on to the next slide. These are... A couple more questions you really want to ask. And the first one is, 
Will the person be a strong advocate for you? Are they really going to stand up for what you wanted, even if, even if that goes against what the doctor or the institution or the hospital where you're at? They can be intimidating. Yes. Yeah, when you have two, three, four doctors, several nurses standing in the room, are they going to be able to go, so to speak, toe-to-toe and say, no, that isn't what he wanted? Okay. Can they stand up in that scenario? The other was, can they withstand the stress, the complications, the frustrations, the anger, and all the emotions that come with a family that's not agreeing? Okay. That gets into the question of, if you name a health care agent, I would delineate who's number one, who's an alternative, who's maybe the third. I would try to avoid naming two people as equals. If you name two people as equal in your um, advanced directive, will they make, will they be on the same page? Would they be on the same page in this scenario? And then the last one, are they readily accessible? They don't have to live in this community. They can be in another state, but are they readily accessible? You know, if they're serving in a rural village in Africa, they may not be as accessible as you need, okay, as an example. Well, I, I think we've kind of reached the point where we'd like to open this up to the questions you have, and, and I'd really like to focus in on your question. Um, we'd love to hear the stories afterwards, but let's really focus in on questions that you would have. So what we have now are the pastors, and if James, and if John, with microphones, if you could simply raise your hand, we'll try to get to you, and make your question pertinent to the theme of tonight, if you can, as well, because we have four sessions to work with. in the case that I would appoint, let's say, for example, a son to be my health care agent, and my wife is still alive, is that then legally binding? Would my son then be able to make those decisions even though my spouse is still living? Um, yes. That's the short answer. Okay. <laughs> when you fill out the document, it'll ask you for a primary and an alternative. And you can list whoever you want. Um, and then to make it you know, basically a legal document, it needs to be witnessed by two people who are not who are not your doctor, who are not, you know, they don't have any connection to you. It just needs to be witnessed. Something important in that is as a protocol thing, if um, your wife is living, you probably want to let her know ahead of time as well and in on that conversation that this is why I'm choosing my son. And um, because the last thing you want is you to be incapacitated, your wife suddenly finds out that your son is making healthcare decisions and she's not and now she's got well I'm your mother to hang over his head and <laughs> she can't anyway <laughs> and, and, then, and hence World War 3 has just begun so. other questions are the documents that are legal in Wisconsin also binding throughout other states or other countries um, the answer to that is yes and maybe. Um, 
the five wishes document is uh, the last count, I believe, legal in 40 states. Um, The other 10 states require some additional paperwork to be added to the document in order for it to be legal. Each state, um, if you look closely at the five wishes document, you will find on one of the pages some goofy-looking print that's not the same as the rest. And that's because in the state of Wisconsin, this verbiage has to show up in every power of attorney health care document that is legal in the state. And so other states have some similar requirements. So if you are a snowbird and you live here and travel somewhere, you want to check that the document can float back and forth. With that said, also, you can visit uh, a lawyer and draw up a will and a living will that has verbiage that can be customized to feature in different states and things as well. These do not necessarily take a place or any that these are just simple things for you to put an advanced uh, health care plan together. Um, but if you already have a will that states these, this information, certainly that's also another way to accomplish the same thing. From a practical standpoint, if you end up in a hospital in Kentucky at 9 o'clock at night and you have um, need to access one of these, it would need to, uh, it, most of these are put into electronic medical records of most healthcare systems. They can contact our system, for instance, and have it transferred down there with a click of a button. And, and then it's a practical benefit to Kentucky because even though it may not be a legal document, it gives them direction. On, on where your wishes are. And that's another, that's the main thing. You want someone to have a direction of where your wishes are. And these documents, too, are, are ones that you want to distribute. In fact, the documents will typically say, you keep a copy, you give your doctor a copy that he can put in, in his or her electronic medical record or paper record. Uh, a copy should go to your power of attorney for health care, and the alternate that you've listed to. And if you are a snowbird or traveling, then you should probably take a copy of it with you. That's a good question. Yeah, I was uh, just part of it's been answered. But uh, when a person uh, is by themselves in a situation where they do not have information with them, uh, what is the result if they're being treated at a hospital which they have no record and they're not carrying any identification with them? It's a John Doe. Default to life. In, um, in emergency medicine, they will presume that the person would desire to have treatment if they can't respond for themselves. So um, implied consent is what it's actually called in medicine. So in that scenario, implied consent would take over and they would do everything possible for you. Unless you have some form of identification on you that would suggest that you would have a do not resuscitate materials on your body. Another thing is actually the five wishes. I don't know if the Columbia St. Mary's one has this, but this has a wallet card thing that you can just fill out and put in your wallet. So you said no identification means not. I guess you went swimming, but... Those of you, <laughs> but um, if uh, if you have your wallet and some identification, you can put that uh, information in there. 
if my healthcare agent is in disagreement with the doctor or the institution, is that going to in any way affect the care that my loved one receives? Well, it will cause conflict, that's for sure. And, um, you know, the, the doctors, um, they're, um, they have a fiduciary responsibility, professional responsibility to do what they think is best for the patient. Uh, but those cl- conflicts do arise sometimes. So sometimes the doctors think that the family is asking too much to be done. Sometimes they think they're not asking enough to be done, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, these conflicts arise, and uh, usually they're worked out. Uh, but sometimes they don't, and they end up at ethics committee for discussion. I was just going to say, the, uh, fortunately, the culture of an ethics committee at a hospital has grown. Uh, Paul's the chairman of uh, Memorial Hospital Ethics Committee, and they deal with cases all the time where conflict arises between staff and uh, family or decision-making between staff. And we actively go in and try to solve for the best interest of the patient. And we also try to avoid legal activity because it's very cumbersome and timely, time-consuming. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of this, if you look at the history of advanced directives, um, back in the 1960s, uh, they were known as living wills. There was a, a researcher, Ph.D., in healthcare, and he, he came up with their proposed living will. And, and now we kind of call them advanced directives. But it was a new concept back then that people in advance could say what they did or did not want done uh, at the end of their life or in critical care situations. Uh, when, I was, um, when I was a medical student, uh, we routinely, the default position if someone had a cardiac arrest was we would resuscitate those patients. And I was involved in a lot of resuscitations, and most of them were unsuccessful. So uh, the do not resuscitate order is probably one of the, the better things that uh, we came up with when it comes to medical ethics. Uh, but coming back to the, the living will, the whole... A scenario with Karen Quinlan, a young woman in New Jersey who was involved in an uh, automobile accident, had severe brain tra- trauma, was in a vegetative state. Uh, basically, the family petitioned the court to have a feeding tube withdrawn. And back then, the default position really was to do everything possible. Uh, and part of that had to do with concerns about uh, uh, liability and malpractice and so on. But, uh, but that's changed now. The default position is, you know, autonomy, and we'll, we'll do basically what the patient or the family uh, asks us to do, as long as it, it's, it doesn't violate your professional code of ethics. Then if that were to happen, mm-hmm. if I were to be asked to do something that I thought violated my ethics, for then example, I would... For example, giving a lethal dose of morphine or something. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, that came up recently. I, I couldn't. I couldn't do that because, um, uh, as a Christian, I, I, I value life, and the doctor's position and role is that of a healer and, and not a killer. That goes back to the Hippocratic oath. But I would say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. We're going to have to transfer uh, your father's care, your mother's care, to another doctor, and that's the last resort. But that happens sometimes. 
That is a, a point, though, is that there is a place where there's what can be done and there's what's just impossible to be done. And um, either because the equipment or the technology or medical knowledge can't, can't do these things. And, but then there's also the uh, physicians still retain that we do have, there's some things that we just are not willing to do because of um, either it's um, bad it's in violation of medical ethics, it's a malpractice issue, there are some things that it's just bad medical judgment or we would perceive as neglect. So there is a place in which case, if that's a treatment that somebody would seek, there is always the opportunity to be under somebody else's care. Um, typically, how long would somebody like Mrs. Smith have to make the decision? And what are the... Um, is she able to change her mind, say she withholds feeding, a feeding tube, and two days into it she says, I can't do this. What's the grounds for changing that? And is there any pressure being applied either to the medical staff or Mrs. Smith from um, her insurance company to make a certain decision in a certain amount <laughs> Well, of time? last question is easy. <laughs> sure. There's huge pressure from insurance companies to do the least and get you out the quickest. Um, but in terms of the time frame, it's going to vary on the situation. But I would say, from my experience, it's not as rapid moving as people think it is. Um, and when it is, there's less you can do. Uh, there's less options. So usually there's a little time to talk to your children. Most of these situations, though you're the agent, you won't make the decision in the vacuum. In fact, we'll encourage you to talk to family and uh, make sure that you're comfortable with it. And make sure that because you're you're not you don't want to be a lone ranger making the decision that will burden you later. Uh, but it, let's just take these situations. The amputation of the leg may be the most uh, well ongoing dialysis is going to have to be decided upon right then and there, or you'll quickly have a problem. Then the amputation of the leg is certainly a major question because of the possibility of infection. There's just a short window there. Um, continuing uh, resuscitation and the mental capacity afterwards has a little more time. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. If immediate decisions about dialysis, you're depending on the severity of things, you could be talking, in some cases, even a decision to be made within a couple of hours or immediately. Um, the decision about the leg will probably depending on how stability and how severe it is, could be a day, sometimes a couple of days. Um, as far as how long can somebody stay on a vent, can take um, several days, even up to a week or a couple of weeks. Um, at some point they may be talking about doing something called a trach, uh, where they uh, hook the ventilator up um, into the neck instead of through the mouth. Um, as far as long-term dialysis, that is a decision that May, is can be made really at any time. If dialysis is started, then it, how long it continues can be uh, made a decision over a longer, yeah, a lot longer period of time. When you look at the options, let's say you choose to do the five wishes, um, there are generally three choices. I want support, I don't want support, and the one that and I don't mean to bias you, but I'm most favored. Obviously, I'm biased, but um, <laughs> I want life support um, if my doctor believes it's going to help. And that means you can also get a test of treatment to see if it's going to help. 
You, there's no um, ethical imperative that we can't stop a treatment once we've started a treatment, although it feels harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but ethically, withdrawing a treatment is no different from withholding a treatment, right. basically. And, um, just to come back to your question. Oh, uh, dehydri- uh, withdrawing IV fluids takes, uh, for people to die of dehydration, like that's a matter of... Um, yeah. 10 to it 14 de- days. It depends maybe. on how stable the yeah, person is. Exactly. Um, not deciding about um, either TPN or... Feeding. Uh, feeding through the vein or feeding through the stomach. Feeding sometimes can take months um, if, it's done, if it's withdrawn. So. But it can affect the other outcomes if you don't feed right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just your question about insurance. I, I think if if the doctors are practicing medicine according to standard of care, mm-hmm. I mean, the insurance companies will go along with that. Mm-hmm. Now, here's my concern. I, I would be more concerned about the government mm-hmm. than the insurance companies because if you develop kidney <coughs> failure and you live in England and you're over 60, you're not going to get dialysis. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet in our country. Yet. Yet. <laughs> Just two little housekeeping things. When you're giving out your power of attorney for health care, give a copy to your hospital, too. Okay? And the other thing was, when you go to your lawyer to make your uh, make out a will or whatever you're having done, he's going to offer to do your power of attorney for health care. You do not need his help. You do not need to pay him. That's better done around the dining room table with the family. Uh, two questions. Um, I think the first one, I think I know the answer, but just to be clear, I'll submit my answer. Um, is Wisconsin law the same as it is in Florida where the, the Shabba case was down there and the husband, of course, was contesting the parents' wishes of what to do with their daughter? Again, oh, the Shiba, it, Terry Shiba case? case? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, it was a case of a woman in a... Pers- she was in her... She was relatively young, like in her 30s, and had collapsed suddenly, and um, presumably a cardiac issue, and had been in a persistent vegetative state, meaning she was conscious, but her identity of self and ability to express her will were gone. And the husband had uh, was by default the um, healthcare agent or the person making decisions, and the um, the. And he wanted to discontinue the feeding tubes that were basically keeping her alive by keeping her fed. And the parents disagreed with that. And then hence the drama ensued because of lots of people coming down on either side of that uh, issue. And then there was some kind of complicated stuff like allegations that the husband was infidelitous and blah, 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 blah. As far as I can remember the case, maybe you guys remember details. I think the legal system is healthy and alive in all states. And any parent or person can take a legal case against an action being done, and the courts can get involved. But, uh, but I would say generally the courts don't like to get involved. Um, if there were an advanced directive in the Shivo case... Mm-hmm. If she had expressed what she wanted. And that was the question is, what did she express? And mm-hmm. the husband said, oh, she told me that she never would have wanted to live in this situation... And the parents and he disagreed, so it did end up in court because there was no advance directive. So it did, it went to the legal system. 
So that really highlights the need to have advanced mm -hmm. directives to make sure exactly. that so, yes. at all. Uh, my second question is, um, any advice on how to, I've been named the healthcare agent for somebody I care about, and, um, but that person did not, has not expressed to me in concrete how they want to be cared for. Um, when I was named this agent, this person was in better health, and I'm just wondering what would be the best way to bring this topic up? I mean, I can just do it, I call it blunt ask, but is there a better way? Um, are you able to carry on conversations with this particular person? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I would look for day-to-day -day activities, day-to-day -day events that allow the opening of that conversation. TV programs, movies, all those types of shows, all of a sudden you'll see something and you could then massage the conversation to open that door. Hmm, that was an interesting show. Well, what, what if I needed to make health care decisions for you and you were in that situation? What would you want? It, it, that's where I would, I would use those type of scenarios to open that door. Yeah, I wouldn't be bashful. Uh, they asked you to be their agent and you want to do a good job for them. That's the platform I would take to them. And I would take a couple of these examples. The Columbia uh, document is wonderful because the first four pages, um, the, the person making the document out fills out their value system. The next two pages, the agent fills out their value system. And you can talk about your differences. Or you could take it page by page through the five wishes and just say, so how do you feel about this? I mean, it's just, that's what I would do. Okay, if you're not so um, blunt and a little shy, uh, unlike Jeff, um, another way, another, <laughs> if you want to be a little bit more like, hey, let's push this topic, um, another way to do it is say, you know, my, I was at my doctor's office, they put one of these in my face, I don't know what I think, tell me more about what you want to do, so, you know, and so do it as a counseling kind of thing, depending on where they're at with these things. Another thing is, is that, you know, I find in my practice, we, it, it, it seems like the holidays seem to be a really good time to bring this stuff up because it's like, <laughs> hey, you're all getting together. Take a whole bunch of your whole family and have like a little Christmas Eve get together today. Y'all be De it Death and dying and session. Yeah. Okay, maybe New Year's is a little bit more of a thing. But, you know, it's Valentine's Day. We're talking about hearts. Why not? It's romantic. Let's go for... I don't know. If you can't approach it with them, then I'd tell them to change their agent because you're not, you're not going to be able to do those hard decisions. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> you touched on this just briefly, but do you see a time coming when the government would dictate or override an advanced directive? You know, I didn't see a time coming when the government would say that um, physician-assisted suicide would be legal, and now it's, what, two states now? I didn't see a time coming where somewhere in the world that um, uh, active euthanasia, where physicians are authorized to give a drug to terminate someone's life, would be legal, and that's now legal in the Netherlands. And um, Sure, anything can happen. Yes, I think as the um, cost factor rises and I think access universal health care is, is an honorable goal and I, and I embrace it but the fact of the matter is uh, we're going to be spreading out the dollars for health care thinner and thinner and there will be people who have to decide who gets and who doesn't get mm -hmm. I think a complete dovetail is I think we're looking at uh, the future being basically two different medical systems and one is driven by who's got the cash and, who, and then there's going to be everybody else 
But that's a total digression. Just one big question, maybe. Uh, maybe Gary would have to give some answers here, too. Uh, you're going to make such a form as you got up there. Where do we as Christians find some written material that says, well, look, if you're going to pull a feeding tube out, that breaks, thou shalt not kill. Or, you know what I mean, where we get some biblical principles outlined, and somebody puts it down in writing to explain to those of us without all of the medical expertise, what does God say about us being made in his image, and where might we be stepping over the lines? Are there such things around me? First of all, the Christian Medical Dental Society uh, has been very active and have put out um, multiple uh, position papers on uh, numerous topics like that. Uh, and also the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, CBHD, uh, puts out many position papers as well on the subject. One last question, and then afterwards you can have an informal time as well. John, get <laughs> you've done the work. Okay, my question is this. Here we are as believers, and we all have friends that um, may ask us for help. And let's say we have an unsafe friend whose values may not be exactly in line with the scriptures and where we are. Can you give us um, you know, enough stamina or internal um, strength to say to a friend who's asking us to be in their life like that, like that, uh, man, no, I just can't do it. I mean, is that okay? Can't, I, I understand. So, in other words, uh, a friend asks us to be involved, to be a, a healthcare decision maker. Mm-hmm. Our our values are not where theirs are because of the scriptures. Oh, I see. and we need to have the strength to say, yeah. "I can't do it." That strength comes from one person. And that's God. <laughs> they also say there's there's very few atheists on their deathbed. <laughs> H- having said that, I think it's a great opportunity to have dialogue with them uh, about the differences you have. They should know that you have faith and that your differences that the differences exist. If they're willing to have you as their agent and they know that, then I guess it's up to you. Mm-hmm. But that comes to place. Is this is if they come to you and say, "This is what I want," and you say, "I in my heart with my um, with my faith, I I cannot abide by those issues," then you need to ask them to ask somebody else. John, I think that. Um the, the Columbia St. Mary's document in that scenario would be an excellent document to use because it, as Jeff pointed out, the first four pages deal specifically with choosing the agent. And the first two pages are written in a first person. So in that case, this person would be filling out those questions. You would fill out page three and four, which are written in a third person. Same exact questions. And you would be coming head-to-head on many of those issues where you could share your faith, but they would then probably also come to the conviction that you are or you are not their best choice. Because you would be laying out, this is how I believe and this is how I would interpret what you're asking me to do. So, If I could make one more sure. comment. I, I also think that, that this um, document that a person sets for themselves transcends some of these issues because... Like next week, we'll be talking about uh, uh, question two and, and dying process and withholding feeding and things like that. And, and, and whether you are an atheist or a, a Christian, if the person doesn't want to have feeding, I don't think that's necessarily a religious decision. And when you get to palliative care and the next week after that, the care, cares we give, um, 
well, they may say that they don't want prayers over them in, in, when it gets to palliative care. You know, that, that may be where you're... Or they may want secular music or, you know... So I, I think the document, by and large, transcends some of those issues so that you could be an agent with comfort. And, and the, the, I think that's a very impo- the important point here to remember is this is not a task. Don't look at this as a task. Look at it as a gift to your loved ones. The more time, thought that you put into this, the larger the gift. Mm-hmm. Because when the family is faced with that separation, the last thing they want to do is try and figure out what it is you wanted. Because they're dealing with the emotion. And if you deal with the issues today, you do the preparation, they then receive a big gift. Can I, can I just come back to, to your question? I'm not sure we totally answered your question. Uh, what Dr. Lines was saying, uh, implying, was that the CMDA, or Christian Medical Dental Association, which we belong to, um, has said that it, we can honor God, we can honor our faith and values, um, and refuse certain invasive treatments, whether it's a feeding tube or a ventilator. Um, that's different from actively intervening to hasten someone's death to actually kill that person. So as Hippocratic physicians, uh, we took our oath and we meant it when we said that there's no way that we would administer any type of poison or agent to hasten a person's death, even if that person asked us to do it. We, We would refuse to do that. So understand there's a difference between those two ways of either you know, actively intervening versus saying, no, we're just not going to, we're not going to kill someone with physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to pick it up next Sunday night, carry on, invite friends. Some concluding observations first. You want to get to that table. I don't know if we still have documents available, but we can certainly make more available, the various advanced directives. There's also a video on display, and I believe that the Faith Community Nursing, Marge, you have mentioned that you're willing to come to homes, in fact, to assist people in filling these out. Christy, I think that you're part of this team as well, so thank you, because they've been a driving force in making this series in October happen. You want to check out the websites we've referred to, the Christian Medical Dental Association, as well as the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, CBHD. Those are two websites that can provide added perspective and papers on these subjects that we've been thinking about talking through. I want to conclude by pondering a passage from Philippians chapter 1, take about a minute or so, where Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to be to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, Your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. As you fill out advanced directives, number one, 
be thinking about these verses in particular and how your advanced directive answers pertain to your ministry to other people. Because you sense here the tension that Paul is experiencing in the life-death matter, yet he's got other people, not his health in mind. And that's a critical component. Second of all, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If it's for to me to live is my work, then to die is loss. But I'd also add, if for to me to live is health, then to die is loss. It's only for to me to live is Christ where I find true gain. Let's stand together for a closing word of prayer. Now, Father, I thank you so much for the panelists. They have given thought, perspective. These are individuals who love Jesus, and we praise you for that. And they carry out their devotion to their Lord in the way in which they care for people. And we praise you for that. We pray for a great wisdom among those that are present tonight. May we take these thoughts, these ideas, these principles, frame them now in a Christian worldview, where we're thinking about now the seriousness of this matter of the separation involved in death and the preparation required for death, pondering the advanced directive the Father gave to the Son. He died so that we could live. And for that, we give you now all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Good night.